Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Schult, and I co-host this channel with Kevin Lindsay. 28 years after Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history and pronounced Western-style liberalism as the culmination of a Hegelian narrative of progress, pundits and academics of all stripes find themselves struggling to explain the failed prediction that China's increased activity in international markets would inevitably lead to increasing political and social liberalization in that country. With his groundbreaking book, Network Origins of the Global Economy, East versus West in a Complex Systems Perspective, out from Cambridge University Press in 2020, Hilton L. Root takes a road less traveled in contemporary economics and brings the analytical tools of systems theory to bear on this perplexing question believing that a study of network structure might be able to shed more light than the traditional tools of economic analysis. This clearly argued and eminently readable book accounts for much of the current state of affairs by tracing the contrasting historical evolution of Europe as a small world network, constituted by the dense connectivity of dynastic marriages between the continent's royal houses, and China as a hub-and-spoke network, with communications flowing outward through the branches of its vast and robustly structured bureaucracy from a primary central node. Other networked social factors under consideration are the development of Europe's blend of Germanic custom and Roman law, and China's tradition of the ideal Confucian gentleman, and its deep commitment to merit rather than birthright as the condition for ascending the ranks of administrative power structures. Emerging from this thoughtful and well-researched study is a compelling explanatory narrative of Europe's ongoing capacity to adapt to rapid change and China's pattern of long stretches of stability, sudden collapse, and subsequent resurrection of largely unchanged network structure. This adventurous scholarly work simultaneously opens new theoretical doors for economists and provides system scholars with access to new dimensions of application. And so, without any further ado, Let's turn to my conversation with Hilton Root. Hilton Root, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you've written an incredibly fascinating book and one that will introduce a lot of new ideas, I think, to the regular listeners of this podcast. And I imagine that uh, Marshall, in his uh, infinite wisdom, will be cross-posting this episode with a, with a number of others uh, because it is a very transdisciplinary kind of work in the, in the best possible sense, I think. Um We'll start us off with with the traditional sort of question. Uh, if you could just give us a sort of succinct um, summary of your academic biography, and I know that can be tough because they tend to be a long and winding road full of lots of interesting stops, but particularly how that academic trajectory brought you as an economist um, to an engagement with complex systems thinking. Well, early in my career, I, I tried to uh, reconcile uh, economics and history. And um, I found that many of the tools and methods and analytical approaches that were uh, common in, um, in economics were not adequate to the kinds of 
deep uh, questions that historians had raised. And so uh, economic historians uh, sort of went off and started their own uh, field, uh, which is to a great extent self-referencing. And this um, and many of the, the really important questions uh, in, in, in history courses uh, uh, were passed uh, over. Uh, and so I, I uh, tried to use um, the, the method, the toolkit of economics, uh, particularly the assumptions of rationality uh, and causality, and found that uh, it wasn't really uh, responding to the deeper, uh, as I said, long questions about long-term historical change uh, and, and long-term cultural change processes and variation across uh, countries and across continents and across cultures. Uh, so uh, complex systems analysis uh, became increasingly relevant to, to my teaching. Uh, I was introduced to it actually by one of its founders, Murray Gelman, when I was a, uh, a postdoc at Caltech, and, and Murray took a, a particular interest in my work. Uh, but at that time, I was, you know, I would say a kind of very much brainwashed a, a rational choice type economist. And I didn't understand a lot of his critiques and they weren't often very straight forward uh, either, but he was a fanatic about history. Many people don't know this about him. He was a, a rabid coin collector. Uh, maybe that's just too strong a word, but he had a great interest in the Middle Ages. Uh, so I had many conversations with him uh, on that subject. And it was only many years later uh, that I uh, started to appreciate uh, some of the things he was saying. Uh, and, and, and that was really due to a very uh, uh, a detour my career had taken because uh, in 1990, 1991, I, um, I kind of left academics. I, I, I became more of a development specialist. I started to do a lot of projects for development banks I was affiliated with the uh, Hoover Institution, uh, and, and I became more of a think tank person. And I worked closely on very large scale World Bank project, which was later uh, a book I wrote called "The uh, Key to the Asian Miracle." And then I went to the Asian Development Bank, and I eventually served in the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And and during this period of my life. Um, which came to an end in about 2003, so it was more than a decade, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, use the real world as a kind of laboratory for ideas. Uh, and many of these ideas failed. The, the whole notion of transporting institutions, of promoting growth according to a paradigm based on a single cultural experience, that of the West, many of these were failing. And uh, I decided to come back to academia. And, and at that point, I wrote a book called Capital and Collusion, which kind of uh, embraced all, all of the experience I had had out in the field, with, with, especially in dealing with the major developing countries, India, China, Indonesia. Uh, and, and then I started to look for a new paradigm and um, eventually started to teach uh, a course on, on complex systems and social science and policy and increasingly started to use that course as a way to re-examine history. 
and re-examine the really big questions in history. Uh, and that's really what took me to, to writing this book, uh, Network Origins of the Global Economy. Fantastic. Um, and you've already mentioned something that I think is, uh, is a key key question or key theme inside the book, and I'll just mention it in a moment. Um, as part of my question, which you, you've already sort of alluded to, but the question is um, is sort of why this, this book now? And it seems to me to be tied up in something around the failed and erroneous assumption by those in the West that uh, greater participation in markets by a country like China would inevitably lead to um, the, the evolution of liberal democratic institutions. And that seemed to be a major gap. Uh, is, is that is that accurate? And are there other particular gaps in thinking or in the literature that you wanted to address with this particular book? Well, that, that's the fundamental one. And you hit it right on the head, Tom. Uh, that that uh, vision, uh, I would even go so far as to call it a dream, uh, is what motivates much development policy it's derived from an overconfidence in uh, standard economic models. It was particularly uh, enveloped in the um, new institutional economics approach, which, which, which to a certain extent tried to uh, use Western European history as a blueprint for the general universal processes that would, uh, that would promote economic development and apply these in as many cases, as in many places as, as it could be. And that, and, and, and that's a, in a way it's an exaggeration because many of those uh, new institutional economists had a lot of skepticism about the portability of it. Uh, but nevertheless, it was taken up by the development institutions and it was taken up by public policy and it became an article of faith uh, and still to a great extent is. Uh, it still drives many of the ideals of liberal internationalism, uh, and 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 uh, it hasn't really uh, been been uh, so. Even though it doesn't seem to work very much in practice as an item of faith, it's still very motivational. Uh, and uh, so 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 I uh, wanted to be very scientific and objective about this. I had written a book. Uh, prior to Network Origins, which is called Dynamics Among Nations, uh, that was written seven years prior to it and published in 2013 by MIT Press. And that really does talk about international re relations from a complex systems perspective, uh, but it doesn't focus directly on the complex networks that form the global economy as the, as the new book does. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your question directly, Absolutely. but I really and, uh, agree with the, with the comment. Yeah, uh, great. And I would agree also this sense that, uh, that the, it's an article of faith. It hasn't actually died and that there's all, there seems to be a continuing frustration about something's gone wrong here. Why isn't, why isn't this development path of China that we all anticipated? There's something as opposed to what I think your book in my reading anyway, suggests is that China is, is developing and is in a sense um, showing the world a different model. We don't have to like it. We can still obviously um, hold fast to our, our desires in the West to promote uh, democracy um, and, all, the, and all, of, all of its entailments, but that there is just simply another model available that is just built on entirely different foundations. And we should maybe get past 
the frustration or the astonishment that it hasn't gone the way we thought and get on with reconciling ourselves to the fact that there are major um, uh, developments and transitions going on that we're going to have to find another way to cope with. So let me respond to that. Um, I want to point out that the China model is, is, is unique to the antecedents of, of Chinese history and culture. Uh, I don't think it is actually available uh, as an alternative model. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is a major transition process towards modernity that is fundamentally different in many essential regards than, uh, than the Western one. But I think it's not just about China and the West. It's about the densification of global networks in which there are now many local and regional players that have uh, tremendous power and influence in their neighborhoods, such as Saudi Arabia or Iran uh, or Nigeria. Uh, so recreating the uh, or, or, or thinking the world, his, uh, world system is recreating itself in the model of the Cold War, where you have two poles, uh, I think that's problematic. Uh, I think the U.S. and the Chinese like to think of themselves as the, the major players and that this is a recreation of something that they both seem very familiar with. But I don't really think that's what the action is. And one of the key parts of the book is about how networks are densifying, how power is decentralizing, and how both the United States and, and China uh, have to eventually recognize the uh, decentralized complexity uh, that, that, that of global trade, of you know, the networks that I examine in the book uh, influence the United Nations, diplomatic influence, trade, uh, arms distribution. Uh, much of that is, is de- uh, um, is becoming less uh, hierarchically structured, and mm-hmm. the only the only system in the global uh, today that 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 is global and is actually reconcentrating is global finance. Uh, although the Chinese are going to make a very big effort to uh, undermine that as well, but I don't think they're they're likely to succeed because finance is very dependent on social institutions uh, that, uh, that China doesn't have, mm-hmm. uh, that the West has. And this is why there's been, even during this moment of, of last 12, 13 years of reorganization of the global economy, finance has reconcentrated itself in basically London and, and New York. Uh, and the book talks about that as well, but it doesn't actually bestow power uh, because if, the um, uh, political authorities were to uh, intervene in financial markets uh, according to political motives or motivations. They those markets would be uh, would lose their uh, global appeal. Uh, so it's not actually a, 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 as much a source of power uh, as it is, in a sense, a production of a of a global public good. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see. Uh, whether China's efforts to displace uh, the, the, the financial concentration of Western institutions with its own. Uh, I mean, that's a major initiative 
of, of, of the Chinese. They, they think they can do this uh, using digital technologies, uh, but it's really the social technologies. It's really the constraints and the rule of law and the boundedness of political authority by, by law that enables financial markets to, to grow. And, that, and that's something the Chinese don't have, and they haven't really understood why it's so fundamental. So first, let me apologize for my cat, who seems to be wanting to comment as well. It's the pandemic's getting to him as well. So I'm going to try and get, get his sound out of this as much as possible. My apologies for that. Um, I want to double back then, uh, because as, as you mentioned, it's certainly not a case of that the Chinese model is any more exportable than the Western model, but that what is key are the network formations and the network structures, and that, that this book is asking us to look at the non-exportability, in a sense, of the Western model or any other model to have to the fact that network structures exist that have long historical antecedents, both in the West and in the East, and that you you take some time to sort of describe and excavate the, the topography of those different networks. So if we can start just backing up maybe a giant step to something really simple to, for our listeners. So can you say just a little bit about networks as we should understand them in terms of, of your book? So I'm very glad you asked that question because most people think of networks as a relationship uh, between, let's say, friends or partners or people who communicate on the internet. Um, The way I use networks in this book is to understand the structure of those relationships. So the, I'm very concerned with the topography of the network and the extent to which the topography influences the behavior of the uh, agents or the nodes in that network. So we actually know a lot more about this due to what I consider to be one of the most fundamental uh, discoveries in social science uh, that has, uh, which is really what this book is based upon, which is the notion of of, of small world networks uh, and the special characteristics of those networks uh, and and how certain types of small world networks, which reduce the um, the distance between any one node in the network to any other. So because of the emergence of giant hubs, the communication across the, the network uh, is significantly facilitated or enabled. Uh, so you create uh, much larger communities of both you know intellectual understanding and cooperation on 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 on, on, on the economy and on, on so many other issues uh, so you have this hub based system uh, which is a distributed in the case of the west system uh, the chinese uh, small have a small world system too but it's based on the existence of a central node and the central node is um, in a sense a more efficient form of organization, I would also say, by the way, a much less natural one. So it, 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 it prevents or it inhibits the kind of self-organization that would occur in it and the kind of innovation you would get in a distributed system like the Western one, uh, which never, uh, which doesn't have a central node. But when you have a central node, you also have uh, vulnerability. Uh, and the book talks a lot about what those vulnerabilities are 
and how those vulnerabilities influence the uh, systems managers to take certain points of view or certain positions in their desire to control and increase their control over the system. Uh, so if you think about it this way, in a distributed system, the agents optimize their power by creating as many linkages to other nodes, including important nodes. And, and, and in a sense, they do this by giving those nodes identity, uh, giving the identity of those nodes the liberty to, uh, and even to protect that identity. Uh, so you have uh, the, the largest node is actually the one that's most interconnected uh, to many other centers. In a Chinese system, the opposite principle is at play. So the central node uh, wants to discourage or disable any other secondary hubs from forming because any secondary hubs that are not directly connected to and subservient to the central hub will diffuse or diminish the power of the central hub. Uh, so they are incentivized basically to crush you know, manifestations of civil society. Uh, whereas in the Western system, the uh, opposite is the case. And, and, and the uh, optimization principle is to encourage and, and build and allow the network to grow through so the, the um, this diffusion of subsidiary nodes that are, collect that are connected to the hubs. Uh, and the hubs are all actively competing with each other. Um, whereas in the central node, the hubs... Are, all, are, are completely subordinate to the central hub. They don't compete with each other. They don't have direct communication with each other. And the central hub tries to discourage that by the creation of cutoff points. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening, I think, in China today. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily um, driven. So, 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 so the, the point is, it's, this is a property of the network. And people are adapting and individual agents are adapting to the network and changing or their behavior to maximize uh, their uh, stature or role within this network. So mm -hmm. that's 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 a um, that notion uh, of how networks influence behavior is based on the work of a few physicists. Duncan Watts is one of them. Uh, Barabasi, they're uh, a person named Newman. They did the uh, pathbreaking work in this field, but they didn't do it in, in the social sciences. They did it in physics. And so what my book is really trying to do is to take the uh, intuition and the implications of that uh, new scientific knowledge that we have about how networks work and transfer it to, the, uh, to social science. Mm-hmm. And I think you've done a splendid job with it, by the way. I think, I mean, this book is really fascinating for me and, uh, and it's got me thinking in a lot of new ways about, about many of the issues. I, I, I also, just in thinking about this now, you reminded me of the ways that you describe um, the central node of the Chinese system uh, that um, deliberately discouraging uh, other actors from achieving a kind of legitimacy, which then would give a kind of power um, through other types of associations being a way that, that it kind of controls 
um, that that central node becomes the, the powerful one as opposed to um, international groups of business people forming net transnational networks, et cetera, that become other nodes that have legitimacy because of their 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 connectedness. So that influence can accrue to other types of actors in the Western system that are discouraged in in the Chinese system, which I think is a fascinating um, way way to look at this. Um, so you've used the word legitimacy, and uh -huh. I think that's uh, really fundamentally important. The actual subtitle of my book, Dynamics Among Nations, the 2013 book, the subtitle was The Evolution of Legitimacy and Development in Modern States. So, um, and I think that the topic of legitimacy is one that both is not a very popular topic in political science today, and in, in economics, it, you would never even uh, see any mention of it. Uh, but this is definitely about legitimacy. It's about identity. Uh, and, and, uh, and it tries to bring these uh, subjects into a wider discussion of global development through the uh, understanding of how uh, networks function uh, and how connectivity works in different uh, topographies. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Um so the book is called Networks, uh, or sorry, <laughs> it's called uh, Network Origins. That's the word I wanted to stress, is origins. So let's talk a little bit about the different origins. Um, let's talk about the origin of, as you mentioned, you, you, you give, and there's nice graphics uh, showing different types of network topographies from the small world to the more uh, hub and spoke network of the Chinese uh, system. Can you, so you take us through a fascinating historical uh, journey of how this network uh, topography develops, this small world network, first in, in the West and in Europe, and then in the Chinese context. And this blend of um, Germanic local tribal custom with remnants of, of the notions of Roman law that are then really amplified by the rediscovery of the Justinian Code. And it's a, it's a fascinating story. Can you just give us a, I know it's, it takes up much of the book, so I'm asking you to do the impossible here, but can you give us kind of a precy of the main features of the origins of this network topography as it, uh, as it developed? So I think one of the points that you just made, uh, raised, the, the role of law is very uh, illustrative of the differences between these networks. So in the distributed system of the West, uh, much of the uh, development is really related to uh, legal systems and to legal traditions, and in particular, the, uh, the, 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 the blend or fusion of Germanic uh, customs that uh, were articulated in the, the so-called feudal bond or feudal contract, uh, and, and then the uh, the fusion of that with uh, Roman law uh, via the church and then eventually embodied uh, in the national legal systems of various European nations, uh, which, is, which, which blends the two. But what it means is that um, all of the, um, uh, the, the, the law itself uh, becomes... Um, a, a, a something to which there are um, increasing returns uh, th by the use of law um, 
law becomes increasingly uh, important and uh, embedded in the system. So uh, in the Chinese system, uh, laws and lawmaking has no autonomy. So something I don't mention in the book, for example, where, uh, but but I'm I'm thinking, I've been thinking about it subsequently, uh, communities of merchants can form their own laws and and, and, and jurisprudence uh, in order to um, uh, negotiate among themselves and to adjudicate their disputes. And that eventually becomes mainstreamed into the laws of the king and, the, and of the nation. In, in China, no uh, civic group would have been allowed to formulate its own legal system. Uh, so the relationships, uh, other than those of the state, which uh, come from the central node, all of the other relationships are informal. They have no legal structure. Uh, and so the result is kinship and, and ancestor worship become fundamental to Chinese culture. Uh, and in a sense, this is, this is actually a dysfunctionality of a system. In other words, because uh, the law doesn't penetrate into uh, the local level and in and, 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 and quotidian lives of people, they depend on kin relations uh, and they depend on lineage reciprocity uh, and they depend on lineage networks uh, f- to organize their day-to-day life and for such things as marriage or even the transfer of property. Uh, and whereas in the West, all of these things become part of the legal system uh, and the legal system has an autonomy, uh, and, and I describe it as a, a, a one of the hyper networks within the system. Uh, so, so law is really um, the area that this book focuses on to exemplify the rift or the gap between Chinese social organization and Western social organization. Yes, and and again, the the interconnectedness across um, uh, national boundaries as well. That these these bodies of law in the European context, um, you have this mobility. Well, first you have these connections. So, for instance, you know, people doing business in Brussels have some interconnectivity with people doing uh, business in Paris or in in Amsterdam. Uh, that has its own again legitimacy and autonomy, so that the only linkages are not the royal houses, which we'll get to in a moment as the kind of superstructure. But um, that, and that you mentioned that if, if, if one node gets taken out of that, the, and I guess these are two terms we should probably get into as well, the, the idea of stability versus resilience, but um, that if one node gets taken out, the system can adapt to that, right? These people, if, if, if conditions change in Amsterdam, well, I can go do business in Paris or I can. um, So, um, so okay, but let's maybe first before we get into the the role that the intermarriages of the of the royal houses play in the western in the construction of the western well, network. Well, let let's me just, maybe, yeah, yeah sure. Go just, ahead. Go uh, ahead. Amplify what you just said is that sure. um, so so um, this allows for self organization without design to take place in the west uh, because um, you could uh, a business uh, in in Amsterdam or or, or in uh, some other city can uh, is, is is using the same legal system. It's a system 
that gives autonomy to that mode of activity uh, and it protects it from uh, the royal overreach uh, and, and, and it goes down to the parish level. So even the village communities, and you mentioned uh, my early career as a historian and in, in, in early work I did as an economic historian, I was very concerned about village communities and how they acquire a legal identity uh, during the 18th century and the influence this has on, on state formation and on, and on resource allocation. Uh, so, so this notion that even the, the most basic unit in the society has a legal personality uh, and has recourse to law uh, and has a corporate identity based on its uh, on a legal foundation that's recognized. Uh, that doesn't ever happen in China, uh, and that is so fundamental to how Western society organized itself and uh, and protected itself from what you just said, the uh, concentration of power among a few royal families. Right. And could you tell us a little bit? Um, well, before we move into the well, let. Okay, let's talk about the royal family since that's what just came up. So, can you say a little bit about the uh, the the network? You trace the network of these of these royal connections, uh, and it's not just a, you know a, a couple of marriages at the top, but many, many, many strands and redundancies of connection between these royal houses. Can you say a little bit about that and its and its importance to the network formation in the West? So, uh, I've used the term uh, hyper network to describe the interconnectivities of, of this of, of these marriage the marriages of royal families that eventually result in, to a great extent, the current boundaries of, of European nations. Uh, but there are some things that are quite remarkable uh, that I knew about and always uh, bewildered me well, uh, from my early studies of European history that the number of royal families didn't change very much over a one millennium period. Uh, and, and there were only one major addition and a few, uh, were, were wiped out. So there was a, uh, very, um, the, 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 the family's relative power to each other changes significantly over time. Uh, and of course, much of European history is about the, uh, conflicts between these families, but these families operated according to a code that guaranteed their self-preservation. Uh, none of these families uh, were, they all abided by the, the, the theory that they were all equal. Uh, that they, and, and, and so if you, you look at the protocol, for example, of the Westphalia meetings, where you see uh, each royal is, is expected to be treated as an equal to every other. Uh, and, and, and when one family gets too uh, potentially threatening or large, the others regroup to contain its control over the entire system. So what this gave Europe a very unique quality, which is that your, your most expansion, political expansion in, West, in, Europe, in world history is contiguous. So, you know, countries uh, expand contiguously and they expand their borders. Uh, so most empires are uh, have continu- contiguous borders. In Europe, because there was an agreement that that that, that no no one royal family could wipe out another, uh, the expansion of Europe went overseas, uh, and so 
that that gives a different, somewhat different twist to um, European overseas expansionism, the motives for it, uh, and and the um, uh, and, and the the role of, of colonies. Uh, China doesn't have colonies. The Ottoman Empire doesn't expand uh, into non-contiguous lands far, far from its borders. Only, only Europe does that. And I think it is a reflection of this uh, balancing that goes on uh, of the royal families. Uh, and it's unique. It's unique to Europe. And it continues to this day. To this day, there is a recognition that every component, uh, every, every, every royal, every state has equality to every other. Uh, now, if you want to build a world on that basis, that, that, that's fundamentally different than the Chinese notion of their uh, primacy over all other uh, nations, uh, their centrality. Uh, so, so this is why the, uh, the um, notions of behavior of China in the world system today are so fundamentally different from the European and Western uh, behaviors. Um, and it sounds to me like we're talking a lot about what in, in, in the sort of inside systems uh, language, we talk about mental models that undergirding the design of institutions and structures and organizations are mental models, our ideas about what the world, what the world is like, what it is like, or what it ought to be like. And those undergird. So we've got, um, you know, the tradition of the Lord and vassal relationships. We've got all these reciprocal sort of feedback loops in Europe that, that stabilize each other. And then we've got a different set of mental models uh, coming largely out of Confucianism in the, in, the, in the Chinese context that we'll talk about it in a moment. But before we take that turn to China, can you say a little bit about, and this may naturally lead us there, two key terms, which are resilience and stability and how... Um, these two uh, different and, and any other of the sort of types of topography you want to mention, but particularly the small world network of Europe and the hub and spoke network of China and how those relate to these two uh, particular notions of stability and resilience, which are not the same thing, obviously. So before I answer that, and I do intend to, I just want to make a comment about what you said earlier about mental models. Mm -hmm. This is something that, that interests me very greatly, and it's not something that the book directly addresses, but it's certainly something that one needs to think about in this context. So economists have talked about the embeddedness of social institutions and, 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 and the notion of informal norms and how in, informal norms uh, have a, a pervasive influence on the forms of economic structures that arise in different parts of the world. Or with the, uh, among different groups, and so this really does uh, speak to exactly what you're saying and, and what this book is addressing, which is that in different network systems, the behaviors and the mental models uh, necessary or or that that, that arise in, in in those contexts uh, are, are are different. Uh, and this is why the embeddedness of social institutions is so deeply problematic in economic policy reform, because those are not only per, those mental models are not only pervasive, but they're persistent. Uh, and in order to understand their persistence and their pervasiveness, we really need to understand the network structures. So now 
let me segue into your question about stability and resilience. So resilience is, 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 has become one of the most uh, important concepts uh, in, in uh, thinking about uh, the uh, world we live in because we, we, we are you know, increasingly concerned about the resilience of our ecosystem, the resilience of our social systems. Uh, we used to be uh, particularly concerned uh, about um, how, uh, how uh, well, well, this is a way to look at the endurance of a system. Um, and the resilience is, is really to, is about the um, ability to make fundamental changes or significant changes without causing a system level collapse or uh, going into a kind of chaotic state. Now, stable systems, um, can, a system can be stable for a long period of time, uh, but if one of the system variables changes, it, it, may, it, it may cause a, a very destabilizing uh, event. And this is what we see persistently in Chinese history, that when dynasties have fallen, uh, there's usually catastrophic impl- uh, so- social implications. It takes sometimes 100 to 150 years to rebuild social order uh, when there's a f- when 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 uh, when there's a, a, trans- uh, a, a dynastic uh, system collapse. And this is um, this means that the system tends to when it gets recreated, it tends to recreate itself according to the same principles uh, of, the pre- of the previous system uh, to insulate itself from a, a future volatility moment. So the resiliency model is much more uh, what I call uh, akin to the, to the European dynastic system. Um, the system reroutes itself. Uh, change and innovation can occur from any part of the system and, and, and it can spread through the system without destroying it. Uh, new nodes can, uh, the system can grow, uh, and the system can grow in a, in a mat- rather relatively organic or self-organizing fashion. Whereas the hub, the hub and spoke Chinese system, the connectivity in the system can only grow if there are resources allocated directly from the center. Uh, it can't grow in a spontaneous or natural uh, way. Uh, so I think those are the two, um, the, 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 so I've taken this language of resilience, which obviously comes from ecology and I've applied it, applied it to the endurance or durability of political regimes. I'm waiting to see if other scholars, uh, thinking about these issues will, will find these terms, uh, attractive and useful. I think they're extraordinarily useful. Uh, but I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen the transforming influence of this terminology on on thinking about political systems. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that <clears throat> excuse me as as you know your work introduces uh, new types of terminology and and some of the great you know inter slash transdisciplinary work that that the book is doing is introducing these different types of analysis. So uh, even the term mental models that you and I are starting to use together here is a term from systems that I think um, applies to what has been, for instance, being called um, what you describe as the um, th- these norms, informal norms. 
Um, so I think there's a chance for, again, to keep building a transdisciplinary language to talk about some of these, these phenomena, which is great. Um, so let's turn to China a little bit. So we've talked about, again, in the realm of some of the mental models or norms or things that are sort of baked into the network structure that come from these traditions of ways of thinking and expectations about behavior. So we've talked about the kind of reciprocal fealty in the vassal lord relationships. And I mean, the that, the network of what one of the things that struck me as I read it was the the, the network of balancing feedback loops within the Western system in, in the sense that, you know, the, the Lord is of course, you know, they're providing military to the King, the King is giving them land, but they have to provide that support to the King. Um, the King can go sort of past the, 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 the nobles to, to the, to the, to the, to the peasantry who are, um, uh, their mental model of the divine right of Kings is strong so that there's a protection against the Lords through the popular support for Kingship. I mean, this is incredible, um, array of, 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 of balancing loops that seems to keep everything sort of rolling. So it's fascinating. We turn to China and the, the, um, predominant sort of mental models seem to really be steeped in these thousands of years of Confucianism. And and a number of different commentators on China that I've encountered over the last little while have t- talked about the fact that even the Communist Party uh, of China recreates structures that are very, very similar to the dynastic model of centuries gone by, uh, and that you have these long stretches of stability and then absolute chaos and then the restructuring of a similar hub and spoke network to maintain stability. And that the fear of chaos itself being a strong motivation inside, um, inside Chinese society as a mental model that, that makes the hub and spoke something that can be uh, desired and, and have popular support. So can you take us a little bit now into the kinds of norms um, and how they show up in the network structure of, of China. And, and again, I imagine many of them uh, st- uh, stem from Confucianism and the idea of the Confucian gentleman and uh, connected ideas. So uh, everything you said is, is, is uh, I, I strongly uh, agree with. Uh, there's an absence of the notion of voluntary relationships, such as the f- feudal bond uh, of the fief, uh, the, the, the notion uh, of mutual obligations between a, a, that, that, that in a sense are contractual between uh, power holders, between the sovereign and, the, and, and, and sub, subalterns, uh, all of that is, is, is lacking. So the predominant mental model and Confucianism is really mostly about ceremonies and, 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 uh, and, and about practices, ceremonial practices and ceremonial authority. Uh, and uh, it tends to be uh, unresponsive to, um, so, so that, that, uh, unresponsive to, um, or I shouldn't say unresponsive to. So let me, let me correct myself for a second mm-hmm. here because this is a very important point to establish that the, um, the, the Confucian bureaucracy of China was responsive to innovations that would um, that were that, that, that could in, can maintain the, the status quo or, or maintain uh, their system. Uh, so these could be sometimes are viewed as extensive 
innovations that could spread across the population because you have a, a centralized system that can uh, provide information about what has happened in one area or what innovation has worked here. And so you get this spread, but what you don't get is disruptive innovation, anything that might be considered disruptive. So many of the uh, great um, uh, technologies that, that account of our, uh, that were used in European expansionism, such as the gunpowder and the compass, uh, all, and, and, and even the uh, printing press and paper, you can make a, a list of innovations that were stamped out or were viewed as potentially disruptive uh, in China. And because of the Confucian uh, structure and the, the system of a Confucian uh, bureaucracy that's uh, highly centralized and, and, and uh, you, you could eliminate uh, these uh, potentially disruptive innovations. But these potentially disruptive innovations, of course, are what account for the large scale changes in economic productivity. Uh, and, and this is what China, you know, was, was, was the Chinese lost out on that. So, um, so that there is a predominant mental model. Uh, there's a predominant mental model within the bureaucracy, but there's also a predominant mental model with the people. So one of the um, dichotomies in China that has always attracted scholarship, and I was interested in it from very, very early on, because my father had actually served the, uh, in China during the Second World War. He became very familiar with the culture, and he always would observe that the culture and the nation, the, the culture of the people as he experienced it, and as anyone who has spent time in China has, would have experienced it, is often at great variance with the modes of state expression. Uh, and so the culture seems to persist despite the chaos, despite the periods of disintegration. The cultural norms of China uh, seem to persist and they are, they are endorsed uh, by, by Confucianism because Confucianism always uh, emphasizes your responsibility to your family is stronger than your responsibility to the state. So um, when we talk about obligations, for example, there's a survey of giving around the world, uh, which countries spend more time in giving charity, uh, money. And China is always at the bottom of 126 to 128 countries in the survey. Uh, and, and, so, and so China, you have people who uh, are very mistrustful of strangers, but are very willing to help people within their community, within their lineage system. Uh, and it's the lineage of systems that have sustained China over 6,000 years of history. And it's exactly the, uh, this that has disintegrated in the West because the rule of law civic society model basically replaces uh, lineage connectivity. Uh, it substitutes it. It gives people opportunities beyond their lineage group. Uh, and the only lineage system that persisted in Western uh, European history was the monarchs uh, and the aristocrats. So here's another interesting contrast with China, whereas at the very uh, senior level of the West, you have these uh, lineage-connected uh, system, uh, whereas in China, 
at the, you know, the senior management are people who uh, qualify by an examination system. Uh, and so they are actually, uh, the examination system is actually designed to weaken the control of uh, the state by powerful lineages. Uh, so this is why when Chinese people look at the West, they see something which is very autocratic. Uh, and when we look at China, we see something which is very autocratic. Hmm. The Chinese actually perceive themselves as living in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the meritocratic, the, the, this, the sense of the meritocratic nature of the examinations and, and all of that? Yeah, because the yeah. ruling class are chosen through an examination system. They can pretend to be, they derive their legitimacy as, uh, as being a meritocracy and as being open to talent from anyone can take these exams, even going back to the 10th century. Uh, and yes, so this gives them the sense that their um, social mobility is more an uh, inclusiveness in, in leadership and in governance is greater than that of the West. Mm-hmm. It's rather paradoxical <laughs> and we don't see it. And it's a, it's a, it's a, re, and it's a cause of great misunderstanding. Aha. Uh-huh. That's fascinating. Uh, it, it, that sense that uh, anyone from anywhere can grow up to be the president of the United States, for instance, and th- this, this notion of, of meritocratic advancement um, is, is really hardwired into this uh, Chinese system of it's the same exam for everyone and everyone can take it. What's interesting, though, is, as you point out, is that it's also the only game in town. And the becoming part of the Mandarin it is, 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 or at least traditionally, I mean, obviously things are in, in flux and we'll talk a little bit about where China's at at the moment before we, um, before we wrap up. But um, the, and it, I, I'd never before I, I encountered your book, saw the connection between um, stifling innovation and ensuring that no non-government actors accrue the kind of legitimacy or influence. And so um, the, the the great distrust of anything that would be disruptive and potentially be a step on the path to, to the chaotic periods of the past would be worth paying the price of stifling things like the p- printing press in order to ensure that only the state uh, ever accrues the kind of legitimacy for major social action is was fascinating to me well thank you i'm it's so gratifying to hear that some of these themes come through yeah absolutely absolutely they're crystal clear for me um and um another thing along the lines and it's it sense it's almost it sounds incredibly pragmatic and you also describe the way that uh and i guess this will take us a little bit into the way china has engaged in markets now is this sense of experimentalism and and sort of, well, we'll try something, we'll see how it works. I mean, it really is in a way what systems thinkers are often taught to do. Don't go charging towards the end goal, introduce an innovation, see how the system reacts, get, get the feedback, make your next move. And that the kind of um, 
the fact that the, the that the central government doesn't need to look for uh, a mandate every time it makes its uh, it changes its mind allows it to experiment with new ways of engaging. And there seems to be almost a pragmatic spirit, which again is maybe an irony since America is the the birthplace of the philosophical tradition we call pragmatism. This idea again also connected to another mental model, which is. Why is it important to to place so much emphasis on how your leader is chosen? Isn't it more important whether the results they bring are good or not? And if if thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of people are being lifted out of poverty, as the Chinese system seems to have done, uh, again, not not to um, try and over uh, you know elide any of the major blemishes, but from that perspective. Um, the idea of how you choose your leader doesn't enter into it when you're doing a calculus of what are the results. So it seems to be this pragmatic spirit of experimentalism that somehow pervades the whole thing. Do you think I'm on on a appropriate path in that analysis? I think that that's fabulously important and very uh, easily misunderstood because of the ideological uh, lenses that we tend to see China through. So the Chinese themselves see themselves, and especially uh, in the Deng Xiaoping uh, manner of uh, you, you cross a river stone by stone, you, you don't care about whether the cat is white or black, the so-called catism, so long as it catches mice, uh, this practicality. And much of the Chinese uh, progress towards markets was achieved through um, a, a kind of pragmatism and experimentalism, uh, but always with the potential of a system-threatening innovation or uh, a, dis, a power that might um, decentralize the central authority. There's always the cutoff point. It can that can be that can be cut off, but. You're, you're still receptive to thousands of experiments going on locally uh, that can be disseminated relatively rapidly once they are recognized as uh, system preserving and, and productivity enhancing. Uh, this is what the Chinese uh, call the, the conducives. So if the innovation is conducive to increasing the prosperity of the population, and doesn't is, is and it's conducive to social order and harmony and peace, then it's a good innovation. Uh, so it is very much what uh, systems thinkers uh, have been uh, method have been proposing, and this is why uh, China is very uh, actually friendly towards systems thinking, uh, and, and and in fact they tend to see Western thinking and particularly Western economics as lacking a systems level perspective. Uh, and, and I, and I, and I, I found enormous receptivity to, to my recent books. Now the network origin book hasn't been translated and it's still going through the process, but, uh, and, and, and things are different now. So anything, you know, the, the bureaucracy is so reluctant to approve anything. Uh, so this, but Dynamics Among Nations, my previous book, which also talks about many of these, was a tremendous success in China. And the book that I published prior to that, Capital Collusion, sold many, many, many more copies in China than it did in, in the West. 
and I'm hoping that Network Origins will, will be well received there. Uh, That's fascinating. And it actually speaks to, I think, on the flip side, some of the reluctance in the West to engage with systems thinking and particularly cybernetics because of the sense that it always means top-down command and control. And the great um, sort of enterprise in the West is to develop ways of using systems, systems thinking that do not rely on a single controlling node. So it's fascinating. It's right at the crossroads of, of, the, of the debates and, uh, and innovations uh, and, and issues at the core of systems thinking as well. Because a systems thinking that is founded in a, in a central node uh, as a command and control unit, of course, is, is appealing uh, to a certain mindset and to other uh, mindsets in the West. So much system thinking is about trying to make systems more inclusive, trying to find that sweet spot between coherence and autonomy. So it's, it's right at the crossroads of, of what's going on in systems as well. So I, I know a lot of your work uh, is about cross-cultural understanding and reducing cross-cultural conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually, this is one of the objectives of my book, which is to enable people to understand how the Chinese have achieved this extraordinary economic success and, 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 and the Marxist-Leninist lens through which we tend to view China today mm. is very uh, unhelpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also distorts the really fundamental differences between the Chinese system and the Russian and yeah. Soviet system. The phrase with Chinese characteristics is the most important part, right? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that requires a lot of uh, thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot there. It's not. Um, and and uh, so, you know, I've written this book in the hope that it will encourage uh, a, a much more meaningful understanding of uh, the two poles mm-hmm. and the two choices. Uh, there are actually more than two choices, but uh, we're, we're being set up for a dichotomization when actually we're really looking at a, something that's extremely paradoxical in, in, in many regards. Uh, and and uh, both sides, uh, you know, underestimate the other, uh, <laughs> and 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 I and I'm hoping that this complex networks framework can help to establish a a, a more universal understanding of these different systems. Well, it's well said and a perfect place for us to, to, to move to wrapping up here because as, as certainly as one reader, the book has definitely done that for me. It's given me a very a new framework to to understand these things and, and made me really keen to d- take a deeper dive into some of the history of China as well um, because it's so many so many aspects of systems thinking uh, to me leap to mind as I, as I read your analysis of these networks and uh, understanding history. Uh, going back and looking at history or going into history that I'm unaware of, uh, I don't have a deep knowledge of the history of China, to now approach that reading of that history through the lens you provided, I think is going to be a very, very fruitful thing. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for 
for uh, yeah. having me on, on your show. And, Absolutely. And so we'll just finish with our traditional last question, which is what are you working on now? Are you going to continue to write about China? Are you turning network analysis in another direction? Or are you starting something completely new? What's uh, What sort of projects are you working on now or looking at, at starting up? Well, I I'm looking at doing more work on the uh, role of religion in this uh, complex systems uh, approach, uh, and I'm, I'm I've become very interested in in in, in the uh, the role of Christianity and in the role uh, of religion and the differences again between China and the West, uh, and and so I see myself as is, is, is working on that topic. I don't know if that will, will be a book. It will certainly be several articles. I've also been strongly encouraged by my own students because one of the courses I teach here is uh, a political, uh, a global political economy for postgraduate. And a lot of my students have been asking me to actually look at the uh, traditional political economy thinking in the West and, and really look at some of the classics and put these into this uh, complex systems uh, perspective and look at, you know, what great authors like the Tocqueville or, or Mansur Olson or, or Doug North, how they uh, have in one way or another uh, either contributed to or what, what we, how we would understand their work differently if we would view it through this lens. So I'm, I'm actually doing that. As well, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm contemplating doing that because that's a very big project, uh, and and, and, I'm, and I'm being encouraged to do that. But I'm also doing something else, which is rather odd, and uh, I don't expect it to be very of uh, interest to very many people. But I'm actually writing uh, an autobiography of my own life in academe, and I'm partly doing this for my children because uh, I have young kids. But I'm also doing it because uh, my own experience uh, is a microcosm of, you know, the struggles to both work within the, uh, the, 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 uh, the towers uh, and, and within the, uh, uh, the word that's frequently used, the, uh, you know, the, the hardest thing right now is to get a young economist or even a young political scientist to engage in this complex systems thinking because of the career pattern. Yes. Because of the silos. The disciplinary and, silos. I knew that was the word that was coming. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And 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 it's very frustrating to me. Maybe and this is why I'm 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 writing I'm thinking of writing this book for uh, academics who 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 understand the importance of cross disciplinary research, but see the, the publication barriers that are out there that are very, very real, even for uh, a, a very senior person like myself, publishing uh, work in my own discipline is very, very difficult. Uh, in fact, I've been told by many economists, you know, you're doing very interesting work, but it's not economics. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course, it's writing a book is a way to start a movement and a way to get out of that. And, and that's why I've written mostly books in the last 10 years. Uh, but penetrating into the disciplinary literature uh, is, is really problematic. And so it's, 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 
and so it's really and, and it really poses a problem for young scholars uh, who who want to uh, explore cross disciplinary topics, and and I you know in a way my work encourages them to do it, but it, it also exposes them to great risk. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that goes through my mind as well. And here at UBC, we have a graduate interdisciplinary studies uh, program. You can get an MA, PhD, and we love it. And we love those students. We love the work they do. But there, we do think, and and what what's next for that person with a PhD in interdisciplinary studies? It's it it can keep one oh, awake so at you, night. You actually have a degree program in interdisciplinary yeah. studies. Yeah. That's right. So being in the, I'm in the public policy uh, program right now, department. Um, it also, we, ha- we face this problem because um, a public policy degree is a non-disciplinary degree. So, you know, an, econ- an economics department will not look at that uh, mm-hmm. with great enthusiasm, nor a mm-hmm. political science department. So we, mm-hmm. we, we generally, most of our, 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 uh, our students, um, uh, go into government or into NGOs or into consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not a, a path to a tenure track position in an academic discipline. Right. Well, here, here we've also got a school for public policy and global affairs. So, and with new credentials, you know, in those areas. So we're, we're, we're treading some of the same paths and have a lot of the same questions about, we know it needs to be done. We want to help create, um, you know, new scholars and, and practitioners in those realms who I guess will in some sense be part of a self-organization process to create, um, you know, as they say, we're training people for jobs that don't even exist yet, given how fast things change these days. So uh, hopefully it's it, all the efforts combined are going to create a new reality where this transdisciplinarity maybe becomes more of the norm. But I want to applaud you uh, on this book in particular, and also for using your position as a senior scholar to say, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to, you, you don't have the same kind of pressure to chase the um, certain publishing in certain journals, and you're able to devote your time to trying to create a new kind of transdisciplinary movement. And I think we need more of that kind of thinking amongst senior scholars. So I want to thank you both for this very rich book. Uh, for your dedication to this uh, approach to uh, transdisciplinary scholarship, and of course for uh, being here on the on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's been a delight. I've been following your work, and uh, I, I certainly want to know more about what you what you're doing. And um, it's been great talking with you. Great, and my cat gets the last word too. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. I'll see you. you soon. You've been listening to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.